Age of Radio. You are listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone everywhere. Welcome to Texas History Lessons. I'm Michael. With this episode, we're continuing Lesson Zero, which serves as an introduction to the podcast, why it exists, where it's going, what to expect. And one of the reasons I'm doing this is it's very important to understand where you're getting your information from. One of the important elements that historians are taught is to, and this is a phrase I heard recently, interrogate your sources investigate your sources historians and students of history in a way are really are kind of like detectives they're going through all this evidence and sifting through it and trying to evaluate and put together an understanding of the past history is not the past the past is past history is what historians develop from investigating evidence left behind from the past. With that in mind, it's important for me to make clear that I am not what other historians, academic historians would consider a professional historian. I'm a student of history. I went to college and graduate school and learned history there, the methods of history, historiography, and how to do research. And for a moment in time, I was on the path. I was running the bases and was headed towards a career as a historian in higher education or in high school as a teacher. But when it came time for me to round third base and head home, I just kept going off into the outfield and followed some other routes. I'm not saying this to deprecate myself. I'm just wanting to make very clear that I am sharing history because I love history, and I don't want anybody to have any idea that I am claiming to be something that I am not. Now, I don't have any regrets about the decisions I've made in the past that led me to where I am. That being said, my oldest daughter, and one of the reasons I started the podcast, quite a while back, my wife told me something that our oldest daughter had said to her. She was asking some questions, and they were talking, and my oldest daughter was said something to the effect of, so he went to graduate school, and he got a degree in history. Why isn't he doing anything with it? Why isn't he using that? And when my wife said that to me, I'm like, well, I am using it. I use it every day of my life. It's a part of who I am. I'm a firm believer that education does not stop or should not stop just when you graduate from high school or from college. And I don't believe that you have to necessarily go to college or graduate school to continue getting an education and educating yourself and learning. It's important to constantly evolve and learn more and get a better understanding about who you are and the world that you live in. And that, for me, involves looking into what occurred in our past. 
and it's also fun. I enjoy the adventures and learning about the challenges people faced. So when I heard this, I'm like, well, I could do something. And to make a long story shorter, I decided to do something. And this podcast kind of grew out of that. Now, I grew up on a small farm and went to school in a small North Texas rural town. Despite some challenges that I faced from an accident that I'd suffered at a really early age, I led a fairly typical life for somebody that grew up in similar circumstances out in the country on a farm. There was always family. There was always work. There was always church. There was always more work. There was always going to school. And there were also a couple of things that were constants for me while growing up my own little areas of comfort and refuge that I could retreat to. At an early age, I developed a love for reading and books and the written word. And that kind of hand-in-hand went with a love for history. I was lucky to have some pretty cool history teachers in junior high and high school. I know some people listen are educators, and the job that you do is very important. And whether you know it or not, you are making an impact because the teachers I had did make an impact on me and helped me. So with having these good, cool teachers and these traits of having a love for books and history, these things stayed with me through the many, many adventures of my life. And they've led to me being who I am today and to doing this podcast. Now, when I graduated from high school, I wasn't sure of what to do, where to go. Uh, My parents encouraged me to go to college. I had the opportunity, and I took it. I didn't know where to go. I considered going to school at the University of Texas in Austin. I considered Texas A&M. And being a good Southern Baptist boy, I also considered Baylor. I really didn't know what to do, so it was one of those great mysterious and lucky moments of serendipity that led me to where I finally went to study. Now, my basketball coach in high school had gone to this little college in Sherman, Texas, and he encouraged me to go check it out since I also love to play basketball. When I went to visit the campus, I pretty quickly realized that this was a good place for me to go. It wasn't too big, but its lack of size didn't mean a sacrifice in quality. My dreams of playing basketball didn't go very far. I was never going to be Michael Jordan or Mark Aguirre or any of my other basketball heroes. But it ended up being a great decision by going to this school because it was there that I got the opportunity to learn history from several top-notch professors. Now, I double majored in economics and in history, and it was my good fortune to take many classes by a professor named Light T. Cummins. Now retired, Dr. Cummins made a great impact on myself and several generations of students. I think it would be very difficult to find someone that doesn't have fond memories of him as an instructor. Even students that weren't history majors loved taking classes with him. Dr. Light T. Cummins 
is the guy M. Bryan, professor of history emeritus now at Austin College in Sherman, Texas. The college was founded in 1849 by Princeton-educated Presbyterian missionary Dr. Daniel Baker, and it was granted a charter signed by Texas Governor George Wood in November of 1849. Now, since it was founded by the Brazos Presbytery in 1849, Austin College has been associated with the Presbyterian Church, and even today the college maintains a covenant relationship with the Presbyterian Church USA. So Daniel Baker was a Presbyterian circuit-riding minister who helped organize the first Presbytery in Texas in 1840. And later on, he helped found Austin College. The charter was modeled after those of Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, and it remains in use today. The State Historical Survey Committee recognizes Austin College as the oldest institution of higher education in Texas, still operating under its original name and charter. There are and were older schools, but this one is, and they're proud to point it out at the school, the oldest school operating under its original name and charter. I should also add that the charter was written by a West Point graduate named Henderson King Yoakum, who happened to be friends with Sam Houston, and he served as the school's first librarian. He taught law there. He sat on the board of trustees, and he also published, and we're going to be talking about this quite a bit in the future, he published what many consider to be the first good history of Texas in 1855. Some say it was the first history of Texas, but there'll be more on that later. Now, Austin College had its beginnings in Huntsville. It wasn't always in Sherman. It had its beginnings in Huntsville, and it opens its doors to its first class in the fall of 1850. The original building still stands in Huntsville. The original Board of Trustees even included two presidents of the Republic of Texas, Sam Houston and Anson Jones. Following three yellow fever epidemics, the Civil War, and difficult economic conditions in the Huntsville area, the decision was made to relocate Austin College to Sherman, Texas in 1876, which was a promising area at that time. Just over a hundred years later, Dr. Cummins joined the faculty in 1978, and he taught there until his retirement in 2018. I studied United States history, Civil War history, and did a special research project for a month on Austin College's history one January with Dr. Cummins. He also, as I mentioned, taught me Texas history. He really was an amazing teacher and a scholar that earned the respect of everyone that worked with him and learned from him. He gave these entertaining, informative, and passionately animated lectures that helped us stay focused. When I attended Austin College, I had a group of friends that we almost had a cult-like fan club of his classes. Even students that were not history majors developed a love of history from attending his classes and hearing him lecture. I've even heard of a student that wasn't even a history major who changed majors and is now a history professor because of attending his class. That's the kind of impact he had on me and many others during his career. I still have my handwritten notes from that Texas history course. 
I lost a lot of others, but I made sure I held on to these, and I used them as a reference point for this podcast. Dr. Cummins' family ties to Texas go back almost 200 years. He grew up in San Antonio area and received his bachelor and master's degree from Texas State University in San Marcos before earning his Ph.D. from Tulane University in New Orleans. In his career, he was, as I've said before, the Bryan Professor of History at Austin College. He was a Fulbright Scholar and an associate of the Danforth Foundation. Dr. Cummins is a member of the Texas Institute of Letters and the Philosophical Society of Texas, a lifetime fellow of the Texas State Historian Association, and a member of the Company of Fellows of the Louisiana Historical Association. He was named a Minnie Stevens Piper Professor in 2006, and King Juan Carlos I of Spain awarded Dr. Cummins with the Primeo de España y América for his works on the history of Spain and the United States. Governor Ann Richards appointed him to the Stephen F. Austin Bicentennial Commission in 1993, and in May 2009, Governor Rick Perry awarded him the post of the Texas State Historian, and he served in that position until July 2012. In addition to his teaching responsibilities, Dr. Cummins has written, contributed to, and edited several books and articles, including A Guide to the History of Louisiana, A Guide to the History of Texas, Texas, A Political History, Spanish Observers and the American Revolution, Louisiana, A History, Austin College, A Sesquicentennial History, United States History to 1877, Emily Austin of Texas, On History's Trail, which is a collection of speeches and essays by Dr. Cummins when he was the Texas State Historian, Discovering Texas History, and most recently he's published Alley Victoria Tennant and the Visual Arts in Dallas, and Texan Identities, Moving Beyond Myth, Memory, and Fallacy in Texas History. And in 2019, he published To the Vast and Beautiful Land, Anglo-Migration into Spanish Louisiana and Texas. I highly recommend all of these books. They carry his tone and energy and love and knowledge and passion for the subjects that he writes about. It's not an overstatement to say that the man has had a very distinguished and interesting career. I am grateful, like many others, to have been fortunate enough to learn from him many, many years ago. I would be remiss if I did not add that the person that taught me how to do the work of the historian during my freshman year, if I remember the year correctly, was not Dr. Light Townsend Cummins. It was a Dr. Cummins, though, just not him. Dr. Victoria H. Cummins, Dr. Cummins' wife, she's the one that taught me in a class how to do the historical method, how to do the research, how to make proper notes, how to interrogate sources and make sure they're the right thing and trustworthy. She's also a great scholar and historian, and I also took uh, at least one class, Latin American history course from her, and really got a lot out of that. Now, in the very first class meeting for Texas history, Dr. Cummins introduced the idea of Texas myth and mystique. I wanted to do the same for an earlier episode when this podcast started, but it took until now to finally do it 
the way I want to and to have a better understanding of how to approach it. And I'm glad I did, because as I said, it gave me time to gather the answers to the survey that I sent out last year. And I think they were and will be a huge addition to shaping the first part of this series of episodes. Now, let's start to dive in deeper into what the Texas myth and mystique is. But before we do that, I want to make one thing very clear. I am not trying to say I am special or have some secret knowledge regarding Texas history because of any of this background information concerning me. I am no Dr. Cummins. I'm not even a poor variation of Dr. Light Cummins. Either of them. But I do have a love for the subject, a passion to continue learning and share what I learn. And perhaps even better, I still have, like I said, my pretty well-written set of notes from the class that he taught. So to start with, we look at the question of what comes to mind when you think of Texas. From my notes, I have it written down that Dr. Cummins and the class, he led us in building this list, kind of what I did in the survey. And you're going to see some coincidences in this list with the answers I got in the very first episode of Lesson Zero. Now, the number one thing he wrote down on the board was an Anglo-centric norm. We'll be going deeper into what this means later, but this never came up in the survey answers, and perhaps it means that we have evolved as a people, maybe. We are more inclusive now as a society, and our history is branching out from the traditional 19th century storyline that was passed on. And in the survey, there were several answers from a number of people that stressed the multicultural significance of the Texas identity. Another thing on the list, pride. Now, this definitely came up in many of the answers from the survey. Texans are aware of this pride for the good and the bad that it involves. And it isn't going to go away, nor should it. Next on the board was cattle. This really wasn't a direct mention in the survey, but it was definitely implied by the mention of the cowboy culture. Next thing to consider when you think about Texas is space, meaning that there is a lot of it physically and also in regards to the idea that Texas is bigger and better. This was mentioned quite a bit also. The size of Texas. Almost every time you pick up a book about Texas, near the beginning, it's going to talk about how big the state is. And as our friends in New Mexico know, had the people that started the Texas Republic gotten their way, Texas would have been quite a bit bigger. But that's a topic for another day. Oil is another recurring theme. Agriculture, especially cotton. This wasn't necessarily stressed that much, but it is present. Texas is still a major agricultural state, even though the vast majority of people reside in urban and suburban settings. Next up on the list is economic prosperity. This is another constant of the Texas mystique. The idea that Texas is a place of opportunity, it is stressed a lot ever since the beginnings of Texas. And to today, it's a recurring theme in what Texas is. Another trademark is heroism. Heroism is a trademark of the Texas myth and mystique, and that's never going to go away. 
Next up on the list was heroic icons of the state's history. Now, I asked a question about this that I haven't shared yet, but this is still a major part of Texas. But today, the heroic icons include a greater variety of people that would not have been mentioned in the past, say, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Nativism plays a part in the Texas identity, and this is still present. But it appears that more people recognize that there's more to Texans than just the place. More are buying into the idea that Texas values and ideals are what shape you as a Texan than just being born here. Plenty of Texas natives do not exhibit the ideals of Texans. Independence is a really big part of the Texas identity, the Texas mystique. And I've recently been reading through the works of Elmer Kelton and in his really amazing book, devastating book in a way, The Time It Never Rained, independence is a central theme, that stubbornness and notion of independence comes up. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Not trying to say that at all, but this is one of the themes, independence. Cultural diversity, and despite the Anglo-centric cultural norm and the focus of Texas history in the past, Texas is a melting pot. This is becoming a significant symbol of pride in Texas, is our diversity. There's also a great deal of geographical diversity, as in the first episode, it's very well acknowledged and embraced by lots of people in their answers. And there's a big diversity in climate also. Lots of people use that as part of their explanation about what to understand about Texas. Now, if I read my writing correctly, I think the next thing that was listed was male dominance. That's been a part of the Texas experience from the early days. But in reality, women's contributions are astronomically significant to the shaping of Texas. It just wasn't always necessarily stressed in the histories written in the past. Now, this idea of male dominance is replaced with a focus on the strength of everyone, regardless of their gender. Another element and part of the identity of Texas is the frontier. The frontier plays an important role in the myth and history of Texas. Texas went from being a frontier to a pretty civilized area really fast compared to other areas in the United States. And it absolutely remains a hallmark of the Texas story. Another thing that comes to mind when you think about Texas is wealth. It is still something that is a part of the narrative. And political power is another. Now, this wasn't mentioned in the survey answers, but the influence of Texas on the nation is pretty obvious and has been for quite some time. I mean, the entire books have been written about the political power of the state of Texas. Texas also has a distinct material culture. And when Texas is brought up, there's also the identifiable dialect is usually thought of. It's mentioned in the survey and is something that is real. And there are actually several Texas dialects, as some mentioned in their answers. 
another thing that is brought up when you ask about Texas is false modesty. Now, I'm not sure if this was mentioned directly, but it is something to consider. Does it still exist as it did in the past? Now, aside from going over the syllabus, telling us about the books and the assignments are going to be, that how the class was going to be graded, this is pretty much what we covered in that first class. This going through this idea of Texas myth and identity and mystique, and that's pretty much all we got to cover that first day. In the next class, we continued the theme. Dr. Cummins shared that the Texas mystique is not false. Sometimes when we talk about this stuff, it might seem like we're trying to say, this isn't real. It's a fabrication. But he stressed, Texas mystique is not false, but it's not entirely accurate. I think the survey kind of showed this also. For some Texans, the Texas mystique is completely true, while it is totally false for other Texans. And for many in the middle, between these extremes, some elements are accurate with most not being accurate at all. Now, literature, film, music, and television have helped shape the myth and mystique of Texas. An example that Dr. Cummins gave was James Garner's movie, The Wheeler Dealers, which portrayed Texans as rich and modest with a unique dialect and language. Other works show Texans as having a general crassness and bad manners. They show that Texans are cowboys, they have oil wells, and they're millionaires. Now, No Country for Old Men, Lonesome Dove, Dazed and Confused, Giant, Hell or High Water, The Last Picture Show, The Alamo, Friday Night Lights, Red River, The Searchers, Tender Mercies, and Urban Cowboy were the movies from the survey that were recognized the most, and they definitely are works that display and help shape ideas about Texas and shape the Texas myth and mystique and guide audiences on their views of Texas. One of them was by Cormac McCarthy, two by Larry McMurtry, one by Horton Foote, and three of them starred John Wayne. He wasn't a Texan, but consider just for a moment the impact John Wayne has had on shaping the ideas about Texas and the West. But that's a topic for another day. Dr. Cummins went on to say, We are self-consciously aware that we have the Texas mystique. In earlier eras, the myth became self-conscious and elaborated on as a self-fulfilling prophecy. The myth will never die. This course will show where the myth came from and what parts are true. But where did the myth come from? We've mentioned TV, literature, music, and those are parts of it. In historical terms, how was the myth created, sustained, and dealt with when self-consciousness developed? Sounds like we're talking about AI, which has been in the news quite a bit. There is a term for the broad media that helped create and sustain the Texas myth, and this term is Texana. Texana is any published work dealing with Texas as a phenomenon. This includes fiction, nonfiction, political media, non-political media, and on and on and on. Reminiscences play a big part in Texana. Texas wealth from oil 
helped fund much Texas history in Texana. One of the people that was really influential in shaping this Texas mystique was a guy named Dr. A.M. Pate. Now, he was head of an oil company, and he used his wealth to collect a lot of Texana. Many Texans have helped perpetuate the myth. Most Texana has been written by those without specialized historical understanding. This does not mean that Texana is bad, but it should be expected to be, by not following the historical method, biased. Cummins added, all Texas history is Texana. Not all Texana is Texas history. Now, following this broad discussion that he led us through in Texana, he led us and we narrowed our look into the role of Texas folklore, which is a very big part of the Texas identity. J. Frank Doby who, along with Walter P. Webb and Roy Bedicek, dominated Texas writing for a long time in the early to mid-20th century, was for a long time the top Texas folklorist. He wrote classic books that you will still find on shelves in bookstores. Now, beyond just folklore, if you want to look broader aspects of Texas literature, you'd have to add Larry McMurtry to the list of influential people who helped shape the idea of Texas and he had a big influence in showing Texas to the world with his Westerns and in even in his more modern novels. McMurtry definitely knew Texas and he looked at it with a very unsentimental eye that sometimes upset Texans, especially those in his hometown. When he published the last picture show, people were pretty irate with him for making the town look the way it did. Other Authors you can throw in there here are Stephen Harrigan and Lawrence Wright. They should be included in this category of people that have created literature that helped shape the identity of Texas, the Texas mystique. But we'll be looking at Texas literature even more closely in a special episode that I've got planned for the future. Another influential person was a man named A.C. Green. Now, for me personally, A.C. Green was a special person for me while I was growing up. He wrote for the Dallas Morning News. He wrote novels. I've referenced his book, Sketches from the Five States of Texas, before more than once. And every chance I got as a kid, I would read his little articles about Texas that were in the Dallas Morning News. He was a very good writer, and he's very passionate about his subject. Now, another writer that Dr. Cummins didn't mention was a person who produced work similar to A.C. Green, and his name was Kent Biffle. He was a distinguished alumnus of East Texas State University, and he also wrote a Sunday column for the Dallas Morning News, and it was called Kent Biffle's Texana. And he published a great book that I have a copy of that I encourage you to look for if you get a chance, called A Month of Sundays. And it was filled with great stories that he wrote from his journeys across the state in search of unique picturesque and sometimes bizarre Texas stories. And he was another one of these dedicated writers that focused on Texas history, heritage, and folklore. And you also need to consider the Texanist section in the each issue of Texas Monthly is also a nominee for influential writers on Texas who helped shape people's understanding of the state. There have been many people that 
provide Texana like these people were talked about. And I really can't go on without mentioning two people that were even earlier than these people were talking about. One of them, a great writer, Frank X. Tolbert, who was a lover of Texas, Texas history, and a big time promoter of Texas chili. And we'll be getting into some of his work in the future. And before we move on, another great writer who helped keep people's attention on Texas and its history and culture and folklore was a gentleman named Ed Sires. He was an author and newspaper man also, and he traveled Texas and and wrote many, many stories about the people of Texas. And among his books, there is a book called Off the Beaten Trail. And if I'm not mistaken, that is also the name of his column that was in a number of different papers. So this is an example of people that, for a career, produced Texana. And as a brief digression, I'd like to add that if anybody wants to hire me for a job like this, just send me an email at texashistorylessons at gmail.com. I'd be honored to walk in their really big footsteps of sharing all kinds of information about the great state of Texas. But I digress. So next up, Dr. Cummins also brought up the author T.R. Fehrenbach. His book, Lone Star, is the best-selling book on Texas history. You can find it still on bookshelves everywhere. He was a great writer, and there's no denying that. But Dr. Cummins still classified him as a folklorist in many respects. The book he wrote was the apex of the Texas myth. He did not conduct extensive archival research for sources, and he did not try to link his work into the broader universe of historical interpretation that historians are concerned with. Now, one of my goals is to do the next step beyond and give more perspective and context in addition to actually doing research, which I do. That being said, T.R. Fehrenbach's book is still a classic book on Texas history, but it is not a book that was written by a, quote, academic professional historian. And for some people, that is something that is taken into consideration. Now, James Smith, when I did the survey, one of the questions I had was about Texas books, great Texas books. And I want to bring up an answer he gave, and it ties into Fehrenbach and Lone Star. James Smith said, I personally am a fan in a counterintuitive way of T.R. Fehrenbach's Lone Star. I disagree with basically all of the racial politics of it. The first chapter about Texas before European contact is pretty sickening. But as a historical artifact, it does an amazing job of showing the Texas that white people believed in in the year 1968. It's a very interesting historical snapshot. And I agree with J.M. about this. Books like this have a value still, even though there are things in it, elements in it, that we just would not be okay with now. The way different people of different cultures are talked about it can be pretty, like he said, sickening at times. And so with Fehrenbach, Dr. Cummins 
finished the little introduction to Texana and its aspect of Texas folklore, one thing I do want to point out here is just because it's been broken down and he broke it down as not Texas history, it's in the realm of Texana, it doesn't mean it doesn't have value. It has great importance. And these works are important. It's just important to differentiate that from history and academic history is, I guess, the kind of a point that we're supposed to take from this. So after looking at folklore, Dr. Cummins moved on to the next topic. And that is the topic of what role actual Texas historians have played in the perpetuation of the myths of Texas. Much of where we get Texas history is from books. According to Dr. Cummins, quote, folks trained in historical methods of research. Historians often use original documentation in their work. This is something I intend to do as much as possible in the future when I can. I rely heavily on the works of Texas historians and people like A.C. Green and other people that think about Texas and share Texas history. Historians try to ask questions of the past that reflect current historical questions, topics, and interpretations. Now, to broaden out a little bit from this subject here, I want to share a quote of a statement that Dr. Cummins himself gave And he did this on the Texas Matters radio show on Texas Public Radio back in 2016 when he was discussing a book he edited that I mentioned before, Texas Identities, Moving Beyond Myth, Memory, and Fallacy in Texas History. And I think this will help us understand the issues that we're looking at a little bit better. Now, he said, what is a Texan? What is the Texan identity? These are questions I've asked. Texans believe that they are a unique people. Texans believe that their state is historically unique. What is it that makes Texans Texans? He then went on to say, Texas identity is very complex. It involves both history and memory. Memory is what all of us know generally about the past. It can come from television. It can come from movies. It can come from music. It can come from what our parents taught us and what we learned growing up. History is a documentary subject in which historians read the documents of the past. We found that Texas history is changing the nature of Texas identity. Texas identity has grown very much in recent decades. There was a time when Texas identity meant something very specific. Dr. Cummins also said it was Anglo-American. It was Southern. It was heroic. It was essentially male-centered. The great heroes of Texas history were all men. And so Texas identity and our memory was a very fixed set of ideas that were stereotyped and have been continued in the movies and on television. The academic historians in this book that he was talking about have found that the Texas identity has changed with times. It's our assumption now in these essays that women, people of Hispanic heritage, People of African American heritage, people of Jewish heritage are also Texans, and the Texan identity has been enlarged and refashioned by academic historians. At the same time, historical memory has not kept up with this. 
there is now a disconnect between popular memory and stereotypes of what it means to be a Texan and the old sort of Anglo-male construct and the reality of who the Texans are today. End quote. Texan identity is a very powerful thing. It drives many things, including our politics and our policy. He went on to say that what happened at the Alamo was significant, but much of what we say about the Alamo today reflects what we think about ourselves and how we take those thoughts and values and put them after the fact on what happened at the Alamo. The same thing happens in politics. We take our present-day political values and we project them backwards onto the past in such a way that we can, at least ourselves, have a historical memory of continuity. Now, the book that he's talking about, many of the essays in it, show that the history, what actually happened and what people thought they were doing, is a bit different than memory that involves this value projection of present-day ideas backwards on the past. Politics is an excellent example of that. Now, this phenomenon, this practice of projecting present-day values backward, that is referred to as presentism, and we'll be looking at that in another future episode. Now, continuing on, Dr. Cummins went on to say, up to the present time, the story of Hispanic Texans is not yet part of the stereotypical view out there in society at large about what it means to be a Texan. When somebody thinks of who is a Texan, generally speaking, they don't think of Hispanic individuals from Hispanic heritage. But that today is a very, very, very real part of what makes the state what it is today. I think some of the contributors that helped with the survey would agree with this statement that Dr. Cummins made. Texas identity is tied deeply into the Hispanic heritage. He also said memory and what we think about the past and popular stereotype changes very, very slowly. We have a much more diverse history today than the popular stereotypes of memory would indicate. Now, the goal of Dr. Cummins's book that he edited and my goal is to try to help memory catch up with the realities of Texas today based directly on our history. Cummins added that today conservatism is ingrained in the Texas memory. The fact is that Texas has a record of being progressive in history. He said the progressive past of Texas in the popular memory was specifically rejected. Memory involves thinking about what happened in the past and also forgetting about things from the past that don't fit the current stereotype. That's where we are in Texas right now. The popular stereotype of what it means to be Texan involves as well forgetting things. There's nothing more stereotypical in Texas memory than the role of the rancher as a rugged frontier individual. But some of the people that have been important in Texas have been progressive businessmen and developers of cities like Corpus Christi. Then Dr. Cummins said something that I really think hits pretty hard on the subject that we're looking at. He said, myths are memories on steroids. It's possible over time to easily change myths with education, but they are very difficult, unlike memory, to significantly alter. There is a myth of the Texas frontier establishment. Anglo-Texans came to Texas. They fought against the wilderness, the Alamo, Goliad, the Texas Revolution, the Texas Republic, created what an anthropologist would call a creation myth 
that to make us unique. Unlike other states, Texas has this very strong creation myth. Creation myths can be powerful. They can also be a bit misleading. He then gave an example from the book and specifically from an article Stephen Harden contributed in which he looked at the famous line in the sand at the Alamo in which William B. Travis drew a line and asked the defenders to step across and declare their fealty to what was going on. There was, according to Dr. Harden and Dr. Cummins, never such a line. Professor Harden proved that definitively, but it is one of our myths. It's part of our creation myth, and every school child in Texas knows about it. Myths are powerful, Dr. Cummins said. They're a powerful way by which history's victors justify what they're doing. In the case of Texas, when you look at Jewish Texans, when you look at women, when you look at African Americans and Texans of Hispanic genealogical heritage, the powerful myths of Texas have sometimes been things the power structure has used to keep its own position vis-a-vis people that aren't part of the myth. He also brought up the role of women and how significant they have been in Texas history, but they have been somewhat excluded from the myth and memory of Texas. He said, when you think of the important Texans from Texas history, they are all invariably men. Women played a tremendously significant role in taming the frontier civilization of Texas. And they created the museums. They created the civic organizations across the state. They were significantly involved in founding the libraries. They were involved in setting up charity hospitals. He said, quote, they were significant individuals who developed Texas into a sophisticated, cultured place, and they are all absent from the popular myth and memory of Texas. Now, this part that he closed with, examples of people that weren't part of the power structure, who were left out of the myths and history of Texas, this started to be corrected in the 1960s with a change in scholarship called revisionism. But that is a subject for a later episode. And I think this is a good spot to take a break. And then we'll wrap up and get ready for the next episode. Okay. I was going to continue on with this one and go over some more survey questions. But for the time consideration, I'm going to go ahead and close out here. We'll be continuing our look into the Texas myth mystique and the different ways it's changed over time and how it's been shaped. And we will get back with some survey questions also in the next episode. Um, I had a late contribution that I wanted to include, but that's going to do it for us today. I want to thank Derek McClendon, as always, for providing the theme music for Texas History Lessons. Thanks to everybody that supports the show through Patreon. and by clicking the link and buying me a cup of coffee. Uh, It's greatly appreciated. I hope everybody is doing well. We'll be back soon with another episode. And until then, take care of yourself. Take care of one another. Be kind. Adios. Adios.